this morning uh, as we're spending some time together, that's the thought I want to bring to you is what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Why would I even do that? Um, is, or rather not is, but um, what in the Bible kind of points me in that direction, if anything? Um, those are kinds of the questions that we might ask circling around this idea because I'm not going to place everybody in the same shoes that I'm in, but frankly, calling on the name of the Lord seems like kind of an abstract concept to me. It's not something that I know exactly inherently what that means. Um, in a literal sense, it might, you know, call on, like I would call on James, right? If I wanted to call on James's name, I would say James, right? Um, so is that what God means or is that what's at play when he says call on his name or is it something else? Is it two things? And so you may already have a biblical understanding of this, some concepts that you have kind of squared away in your mind, but that's kind of the exploration that I went into when I was thinking about this lesson is what does that mean? And interestingly enough, the first appearance of this concept um, as I'm presenting it, as it relates to God, presents itself in Genesis chapter 4. But if you actually look up the word that's used here, like to call, it's like 700 times in the Bible. Um, it starts almost immediately from the Bible, like God called, right, day. God called night. God called it the waters. God called it, you know, he just goes through creation calling things. But it's not until Genesis chapter 4 that you see someone call on God. And the phrasing is going to shift a little bit as we go through this. Most of the time you're going to see something like call on the name of the Lord. Um, when I'm talking, I might say call on God's name, but I mean the same thing as that. Call on the name of the Lord, call on God's name. But look in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. A little bit of the background of this, right, is coming on the heels of um, what we know that Cain did to Abel, right? The jealousy that manifested in Cain's life and that he didn't rule the temptation that was presented to him. He allowed it to rule him. And so he kills his brother Abel because of the jealousy that he had for Abel and the sacrifice that God accepted from him. And so you end up kind of going down this, I don't know, dark path of like Cain's life. And really beginning in verse 16 it shows kind of the fruit of his lineage is similar to his own life, right? Beginning there, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. And he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You know, Cain's lineage presents itself rather uh, negatively, doesn't it? 
particularly as you consider beginning in verse 25, Seth's lineage, you know, the, the son that ends up coming from Adam and Eve after Abel is killed. Um, but when you look at Cain's lineage, look at the types of things that they're known for. for. Beginning at verse 16, the precedent is set that Cain and all of his lineage are going to be away from the presence of the Lord, right? And it kind of is reflected because the things that they're known for, while not inherently sinful, kind of come within that context, right? For instance, they're known for building and naming cities, which isn't an inherently bad thing. But when you start taking into context, like they've gone away from the presence of the Lord and they're doing this, you're kind of like, eh, doesn't look great. They're known for polygamy in verse 19. That's the first instance of a man not just having one wife, but two. They become herdsmen in verse 20 and verse 21. They're musicians in verse 22. They're forgers or blacksmiths, you might say. Some sort of metalsmithing, at least. And then in verse 23 and 24, it seems like his lineage is marked by violence. Um, Maybe there's some pride there and intimidation involved. So the lineage of Cain fits Cain's character in a lot of ways, right? Like they're involved in some things that I think are productive and good things, but it's all couched kind of negatively. And so you're left with this impression that they're very worldly people and they kind of drift away from God, right? Um, And I'm not going to speak specifically to every individual and say that I'm going to condemn them uh, with righteous judgment here, but it seems like that's the portrait that's painted. But if you... uh, Pick up in verse 26, and you read all the way through chapter 5, verse 32, which I'm not going to do right now. Um, You have this portrait of Seth's lineage. But look at chapter 4, verse 26, the very end of this chapter. It says, To Seth also was was, uh, son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this idea that people began to call on the name of the Lord maybe included some of Cain's lineage. I don't know. But it seems to paint the picture, especially as the lineage continues through chapter 5, that the people of Seth do that, and the people of Cain do what they do. Um, I wouldn't be forceful on that interpretation or that understanding of the text, but the way it's painted, it certainly seems that way. And I think this sets an interesting precedent. One, because we see our phrase, right? In verse 26 is the first instance of calling on the name of the Lord. But really what I wanted to draw from this was not just that that phrase is used, but the contrast that kind of is presented on who calls on the name of the Lord and who doesn't. You know, Cain is interested in doing things his way. It gets him in trouble, so he has to leave the presence of God, and all of his descendants seem to kind of be like Cain. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we don't see this phrase occurring earlier in chapter 4. Meanwhile, Seth starts with his lineage as being one of calling on the name of the Lord. And as you go through this, the types of things that his lineage are known for, like chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch, different Enoch from Cain's Enoch, walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Right? Very much a contrast to the Enoch who had a city named after him. Right? Um, when you look at verse 29 of chapter 5, They have Noah, and out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And of course we know 
Um, Noah, chapter 6, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we know his story about being able to build an ark and preach to the people and preserve mankind. But even in verse 29 there, it seems that Seth's lineage remembers the words of the Lord, right? Because they say about Noah that he's going to uh, bring relief from the curse. And so you have this portrait that Seth's lineage is familiar with God, seems to call on God's name, knows from where they've fallen and where they are, and is very much ready and aware of someone being able to bring them relief from whatever curse or distance they have with God. It's to me, seems like a very stark contrast between Cain's lineage and Seth's lineage. I would suggest to you that from Genesis chapter 4, the very first instance of this phrase, we're supposed to associate calling on the name of the Lord with people who are godly. And that may seem like a no-brainer, right? People who are interested in God calling on the name of the Lord, but that's not always the case. There are people who are not godly that will do that, and we'll see that through the Bible as well. And so Genesis chapter 4 paints us the picture of that. In fact, it seems to also lay a foundation that Closeness and relationship with God is reflected in calling on the name of the Lord. I mean, look at the character of the people from Seth's lineage. They walked with God. They called on the name of the Lord, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, were uh, cognizant and aware of the curse God had given them and wanted relief from it. And so I just kind of wanted to set that up as Genesis 4, calling on the name of the Lord, comes from a people who were close to God. And so I think if we're going to be close to God, we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? And like, how do I do that? Right? And so I want to look at that uh, a little more through history of the Bible here. Look in chapter 12 of Genesis. We have another instance of calling on the name of the Lord. In verse 8 of chapter 12, it says this, From there he, being Abram, moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Move to chapter 26 of Genesis. Chapter 26, and we'll read verse 25. So he, this is Isaac, Abram's son, right? So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Two instances, uh, the most immediate to chapter 4 where we see this same phrase appear. Abraham the first time, right, associated with calling on the name of the Lord. Isaac, some years later, does the same thing. And in both instances, right, we would look at these two men as being very close to the Lord. Particularly in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's relationship with God, as far as we're concerned as readers, is beginning, is blossoming. And it's right there that he begins to build altars and call on the name of the Lord, right? Isaac here, is, uh, his story is really just beginning as far as him being the focal point of the narrative in Genesis chapter 26. And it's no coincidence that we're told right at the beginning, he's calling on the name of the Lord beside an altar that he built. So I think there's a couple observations. One, it reinforces this idea that those who are close to the Lord call on his name, and those who are godly call on his name. But it also associates calling on the name of the Lord with worship. 
Um, in both of these chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 26, these verses both have some phrasing of they built an altar to the Lord and called upon his name. Or in chapter 26, uh, he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. I think one idea that we need to get about calling on the name of the Lord is it's something worshipful. There's something about just exclaiming or are claiming the name of the Lord that is worship-oriented. Um, I think, like my example, calling on James's name, right? There's, We might think of that as being uh, like in Bible class, question and answer session, and I, he raises his hand and I say, James, and that's giving him the floor, right? It's giving him the authority to make his comment or the opportunity to ask a question or whatever. That's not all that's happening when people call on God's name. Um, These two verses show us that this phrase isn't just like giving God the floor. It's not just giving God an opportunity to act, but in some way, shape, or form here, calling on God's name is actually a form of worship. And while I might not totally from these two verses understand how that's played out, we see an altar and we see calling on the name of God. Maybe that is invoking God's name in worship. Maybe that's directing your praise and your worship to God by calling on his name. Uh, However that manifests itself, we see it associated with worship. In fact, if you want to uh, turn with me to a psalm here, uh, Psalm 86, and I'll read that psalm, uh, part of it at least, the first seven verses. David is speaking here, and this is what he says, beginning in verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Like I said, if you were to do like a word search for this idea of calling on the Lord, it's it's a lot of results. And a lot of them, the word call is just not even necessarily directed at God, but there are so many verses just like this through the Psalms especially where you see this language. David understood what it was to call on the Lord, but just from this one section that we read here, one other tidbit or kind of angle that we see about calling on the name of the Lord is it's almost a plea or a prayer, right? Like that's how he phrases it. And the way he talks about God is God is, in, is inclining his ear or listening for someone to call to him. And David's like, I'm the one calling. And what I need from you, God, is safety, right? What I need from you is salvation. Uh, you notice in verse uh, 1 there in Psalm 86, or sorry, verse 2, preserve my life, save your servant, right? Be gracious to me, verse 3. In the day of trouble, verse 7, I call on you. Abraham and Isaac showed us very plainly that the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is associated with their worship. 
David is showing us that this idea of calling on the Lord is associated with pleas or prayers, particularly for safety, salvation, grace, things like that. And so as we're developing this idea of calling on the name of the Lord, I think we need to understand that there's a worshipful aspect to this. To call on the name of the Lord is an act of worship, it's part of worship. But also to understand that in our prayer life, on our pleading with God, and our requests of God, we call on Him or His name. And He actually, as David writes here, will incline His ear because we're calling to Him. We're not in calling vaguely to some God or a God or something out there help me. We're inclining, He's inclining His ear to us because we're calling on Him specifically. In fact, there's also some negative to this calling on the Lord. Um, I've given you kind of positive examples like uh, productive, proactive ways to call on the Lord. Um, David actually shows us maybe a negative aspect to calling on the Lord. Look at Psalm 79. Um, And this is really from the angle of like not calling on the Lord. Uh, But David says, beginning in verse 5 of Psalm 79, this, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So not only do we know that calling on the name of the Lord is representative of godliness, right? Genesis chapter 4 and 5. David said that in Psalm 86, For I am godly, I call on you. But we also see that what we would assume is the other side is true. The ungodly do not call on the Lord. In fact, it's a mark of judgment. God is going to be angry and burn like fire on those who don't call on his name. I think that adds some weight. I think sometimes uh, in my mind when I think about serving God just in general, I'm tempted to think in terms like this, though I would never admit it. I think in these terms. If I serve God or do X, Y, and Z, that's an extra. That's, that's above and beyond. And if I don't, then I can still be all right. right. Well, God views calling on his name, being associated with him specifically as necessary to not be viewed like in Psalm 79, God being angry, his jealousy burning like fire, kingdoms of people not knowing him, or kingdoms of people who do not call on his name. Um, There's probably a lot more to uncover and say about that, but I think generally speaking, if we're not calling on the Lord's name, if we're not looking to him, we're worshiping him, we're pleading to him, he's going to look at us as kingdoms that are far from him as people that are removed and distant. Uh, there's another negative aspect uh, that can be associated with this idea. It's in Jeremiah. Um, you can find a lot of verses, as I mentioned earlier, on these things. I just picked a couple that were good examples. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 25. Right. So David shows us negative. If you do not call on the Lord, right? He will be angry. He will burn against you. And the implication of that is a contrast to Psalm 86. You will not be saved by God. Jeremiah says this in verse 25 of chapter 10. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not and on the peoples that call not on your name. 
For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. I just wanted to use this as just more emphasis and we can see again that not calling on the name of the Lord is the mark of an enemy of him. Right? If I want to be God's enemy, do not call on his name. I will not do it. Right? He will not incline his ear to me. He will not save me. Uh, he will not be gracious to me. If I want those things, if I want to be an enemy of God, well then make sure not to call on his name. In fact, I would say that those really, if this isn't obvious up to this point, those who are the closest to God, however we may measure that, fairly or unfairly in our imperfect judgment, the ones that are closest to God we typically see doing some form of calling on God's name. That phrase in some shape or way happens for them in their life specifically. We can look through all of the Old Testament, that is to say the law and the prophets, right? And we're going to see people calling on the Lord's name, calling on God's name. They called for worship, to show thankfulness, as a plea for safety and salvation. Those who didn't call on the name of the Lord were considered enemies and subjects of wrath. In fact, in 1 Kings 18, verse 24, when Elijah's confronting all the prophets of Baal, it was even a way to identify oneself uh, as a follower of this God or that God. And specifically in the text, it says, 1 Kings 18, 24, it says, And you call upon the name of your God. This is Elijah speaking to those prophets of Baal. You call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, It's well spoken. Even calling on the name of the Lord carries this sense of identity. When I call on the name of the Lord, I'm identifying myself with him. It's not just an exclamatory remark. It's not just something that I do haphazardly without any meaning or weight to it. God expects when I do that, that I've identified myself with him by doing that. And it's not just in a moment. The way that Elijah uses this story is not to, just to say, okay, I'm going to take a stance, you take a stance, and we'll see which stance is right. This is who I am. This is who you are, and let's test it. You call on your identity. You call on whatever gods that involves. I'll call on the God that my identity is tied to, and we'll see who's the real one. Right? That's the idea of calling on the name of the Lord is also a sense of identity. When I call on God, I'm calling on who I trust in, where my salvation is, where my worship goes. He's who I've invested in. So with all of this, we need to ask the question, right, naturally. So, so why call on the name of the Lord? Hopefully, in just even talking about the historical weight of this idea, you're starting to be like, okay, it's obvious, right? Why call on the name of the Lord? Well, I want to be close to God. I want to be saved by God. I want to be identified with God. Hopefully you get all that. But I'm going to add another layer to this. And that is that God promises certain things for those that do that. In Genesis 12, Genesis 26, Psalm 86, we see things, people calling on the name of the Lord without an explicit promise from God. We just see them doing it in worship. We see them doing it for asking God for safety and salvation. But we do have some texts where God says, if you call on my name, I will do this. And uh, in fact, let's look at a few of those. 
God promises for those who call on his name, he would answer. <laughs> That's kind of a, a simple thing, right? But it's important. That's the whole assumption that Elijah makes in 1 Kings 18. is like, you call on the name of your God, he's not going to answer. But if I call on the name of my God, he will, right? In fact, Zechariah says that in chapter 13. You can turn there. I'll be reading from 13.9, or you can listen as I read it. It says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So God answers and this also kind of roots us or reinforces in this identity concept. When God hears people calling on his name, he answers by saying, those are my people. And when he answers, the people are obviously like, hey, look, there's my God. I called on him, right? Just like Elijah did in 1 Kings 18. But David was not also um, fruitlessly seeking salvation, grace, and mercy in Psalm 86. When he says, I'm going to call on your name and ask for these things. Because in Isaiah 58, we see specifically that God gives those things if you call on his name. Isaiah 58, and I'm going to begin in verse 7, if you want to follow along. Otherwise, listen carefully as I read. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and to hide yourself from your own flesh... Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. So again, this idea of an answer, right? But you notice in this text, you have kind of this contrast beginning in verse 7 there. Um if you look at it, it says not to share your bread with the hungry or bring homeless poor into your house. Or is it not to do these things? There's an expectation of, of a certain godliness that's carried by people that call on God's name. And there's a certain expectation of action, standards, morals, things like that. And he says when you're acting like that, right, when you do the right things and you call on my name, the result is this. The Lord answers. And he'll say, here I am, right? I think there's this, this is interesting and helpful because we see that this idea of God's intervention when we call on his name is also contingent on our, our own personal, like, uh, what's the word? Identity and relationship with God. Like, if I take that seriously, if I take God's name seriously and I take worship of him seriously and I take his character seriously then God responds favorably to me calling on him. And that's going to be important as we move a little forward in the lesson. So just kind of keep that concept in your mind. The passage that uh, James read for us in Joel chapter 2, I will not reread all of that. Um, but if you notice in that text in Joel chapter 2, I, he read 28 through 32. It's on the board behind me. Um, the last part of that, it says, uh, verse 32 there, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. It's interesting that you kind of have this back and forth calling, like God is calling and people are calling. And in this text, we don't have a lot of um, detail about exactly how they link up, but the idea is that they're calling and they'll be saved, and God is going to save it, reverses it, and God will save those who he's called, right? So you get this idea that God has inclined his ear to listen, Psalm 86, and those who call out to him, he hears and answers and saves, but at the same time, God considers the fact that he inclined his ear and responded to the call as those have been called. Right? And so it's as if God is calling us with almost like information. He's like, look, I've put it out there that if you're, uh, if you're close to me and you, have, you carry yourself by my teachings and you call out to me, then I'll answer you. And he views that as his calling. Right? And so it's interesting that God uses this language to say we need to call in him, but he'll also call us. It's reciprocated, right? And so with that, I want to move into this idea of what it is to call on the name of the Lord today. I don't uh, have specifics as far as like how you personally pray. I think you can learn a lot from Psalms 86, Psalm 79. And if you Google this idea or go to some Bible resource and type in call and let it pull up verses for you, you're going to be given innumerable almost. And you can learn a lot from reading those passages. So I'm not going to go in the way of specifics in your personal relationship with God, prayer, things like that. But I will give you some specifics as scripture points to them. Um, And what I mean by that is represented primarily, at least initially, in Acts chapter 2. This is an important text because Jesus has already died Resurrected, spent some more time among the disciples and then ascended into heaven. And now the apostles, the ones that Jesus has sent, are trying to figure out, all right, what do we do? In Acts chapter 1, they figure that out. Acts chapter 2, the, the Spirit comes and descends upon them and they figure it out even more, right? Spirit has come to guide them in all truth. And part of the sermon that's delivered when the Spirit comes down, the very end of that sermon, or actually in the middle, let's pick up verse 15 real quick. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 15, uh, Peter is speaking, and he stands up, and he says this. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, right? Because the Spirit has manifested itself in a very curious way. Since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is the passage that we just read. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone... Who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, once the the Spirit descends on him and and guides him into this understanding, he's saying, wait a minute, this is what Joel talked about. This moment that we're experiencing right now with the Spirit descending on us 
And this preaching is exactly what Joel was talking about. And so when you fast forward in the sermon, just a few verses, you can go down a little bit um, to verse 37, the application of that concept, right? Because obviously Jesus has come and lived his life and died, and he explains that kind of in the inner interim between where we left off and where we're skipping to. And so the application in verse 37 is, they heard this, the crowd was cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, there's that idea again. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So similarly to Joel, right, we have this idea that we call to God, right? Joel 2 is represented in this text, in this sermon. But then in this explanation of like, okay, what do we do with this? He said, God is calling you, right? You've been given information that God is calling you through is kind of the idea. And now your decision is whether you're going to call back. You're going to call God. And so I think it's interesting and I think it's clear that when we look at this text, we see this uh, verse 38 specifically. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the Spirit. That is the initial way that we call out to God. You know, uh, I think because of the Joel passage here, I, I think forgiveness, as is represented, repentance, uh, baptism are all ways that we call to God. Um, and what God sees in that is when he sees someone do those things, it's as if he called us, right? In fact, God gets to set the terms for which we call out to him, doesn't he? Like, God makes himself available to us. And because it's something where he is the creator and we're the creation, he gets to set the terms for the relationship. And so he says, if you're going to be related to me, if you're going to call out to me, if we're going to be close and intimate, then I'm going to tell you about how you start that process. And... Through the Holy Spirit's guidance here through Peter, we see that what he meant in the ultimate sense from Joel 2 was for you to be cut to the heart, repent, and be baptized and receive the Spirit. And when we do those things, we've made a call to God. We've called to his name, and what he does is he receives that, he adds us, and we've heard his calling. And so there's a lot that could be uh, probably explained um, if we had more time, and probably more that could be explained by someone smarter than me and all the ins and outs of that. But I think that is the initial calling that we do for God. I want to call in the name of the Lord. I start here. Right? But I don't think that's the only calling that we, we uh, give. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the same language is used. This is kind of where we're going to wrap up here. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. I'll read these. 
Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some are for honorable use, some are for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. All right, so he's already presented this idea. There's a house full of vessels. And the question, right, is how do you go from being a dishonorable vessel to a, a, an honorable vessel? And he presents in vague terms, in broad terms, that you have to be set apart. You have to be cleansed and set apart. So what's the application? Verse 22, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I think his phrasing there, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, is just a way to say people who've done Acts 2, right? Those who've called on the Lord and been received by God had been saved. And so he's saying like, hey, if you want to move from being dishonorable to honorable in the house of the Lord, join the rest of the people who are calling on the Lord and call from a pure heart. Call from a heart that pursues for instance, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and flees from youthful passion. So what I wanted to suggest to you is the immediate thing, the first thing is call on the name of the Lord and repentance and baptism and receive the Spirit. But then also, if you want to remain a vessel for honorable use, which I think is the teaching here, call on the Lord continuously with a pure heart by pursuing these things. And I think this is sort of the, the Genesis 12, the Genesis 26. We want to worship God. We have to be calling continually with a pure heart. Okay? And so this text presents to us that the calling doesn't end. You call on God once and you get saved and you stop calling on God. You continue to call with a pure heart, pursuing godly things. And then uh, if you want to turn, this is our last verse, Acts 7. Just a quick point to me, babe. Be made by this. You have the initial calling. You have that kind of continuous calling with the pure heart, pursuing the right things. But then, I think Acts chapter 7, the example of Stephen, two verses to read here, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This idea is not so much calling on the name of the Lord specifically. That phrase isn't used. But in verse 59, it says he called out. And then we see the name of the Lord, right? He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so the point that I wanted to make by this is Stephen was killed for his belief. And I would suggest to you that as you read Acts 7 and you see this beautiful sermon that Stephen preaches... And as you get to verse 51, he like really is convicting these people. He's like saying, you're, you're stiff-necked. You need to change. You need to do what we did in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. These people don't have it, right? They don't have the good response that those people did. Stephen is an example of what it is to not just call on the name of the Lord once, right? To get saved, we might say, or to be right. But he obviously pursued a life of calling on the name of the Lord. Even when it leads him to death, he still, as he's dying, is doing what? Calling on the name of the Lord. 
And so I think he presents us a beautiful picture of not just calling occasionally, not just calling that first time to make sure I'm okay, but really the portrait of, of God saving us, preserving us, calling us his people and calling back to us is the picture that Stephen's offering that up until death, right, we call on the name of the Lord. And so um, as you think about this lesson as we're wrapping up here, um, I don't know what kind of place all of us are in. I know a lot of you pretty well. And I would imagine that maybe some parts of this lesson apply to you more than others. But whether you call on the name of the Lord is between you and God in a lot of ways. But I and others around you can see the fruit of your life in some respects. And so if you need to call on the name of the Lord for that first time, and to repent of your sin and to be baptized and receive the Spirit, I would really, really encourage you and ask you to do that. Be convicted by that. But I think, I know a lot of you well, and I imagine most of us are in kind of that second phase where we're trying to call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart and pursue the right things. And I would encourage you to do that every day. Do that at work, do that at school, do that in the music you listen to, in the movies you watch. Do that in your communication with other people, the emails you write, all that stuff. Call the name of the Lord with a pure heart. And that'll produce in you the character of Stephen, where you'll do that even if it kills you. And that's what God's asking of us, right? Be faithful unto death, and he will give us the crown of life. If there's anyone here uh, this afternoon that's lacking in some area and could use the prayers of this congregation, could use the insight or the advice or the wisdom of some of us from the Bible, please make that known. Reach out to somebody next to you. Talk to me or whatever. Uh, These are the people that are interested in spiritual things in this community, and we'd be happy to help you with that. If there's anyone, Richard's prepared a song for you to consider some of these thoughts while we're singing, so take advantage of that. Thank you, guys.